Hello! It's been a while since the last episode, but my gosh, I've been busy. I've been scuba diving in Monterey, travelled to the cherry-growing capital of the world in Traverse City, Michigan, which was lovely, and endured a 20-hour trip back, including a surprise stop in Oklahoma City, which wasn't. I've also spent time in Europe, between London, Berlin and Edinburgh, and the weather was utterly glorious. London had the warm summer evenings us San Franciscans can only dream about. I came back to California to realise it's been 10 years since I moved to the States this time around. Between that, the UK trip and the 4th of July, I've been thinking a lot about life as an expat in America, and so I dug out some audio I had on the topic. The first is from the Radio 4 programme from our own correspondent where various BBC reporters file dispatches from their part of the world about everyday goings-on that wouldn't otherwise make the headlines. It's available as a podcast, and I really do recommend it. This clip is from back in 2009, when Justin Webb was stepping down as the Washington correspondent and heading home to London. After that is a short piece by Douglas Adams about following and breaking rules. I hope you enjoy. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. America was not designed to be left. The opposite, in fact. It was designed to be arrived in. It was programmed to receive. And as was the case in the Eagles Hotel, California, there is some wonderment at the front desk when you try to go. For effect, I sometimes exaggerate our sadness at the end of our time in America. Result? Confusion. Our British home is in South London, so we'll probably all be murdered before Christmas. Oh my gosh, um, why not stay? Because you have no sense of humour would be one answer, but it's not why we're leaving. In more than seven years of life in America, I have come to value, to love actually, the stolid, sunny, unchallenging, simple virtuousness of the American suburban psyche. The woman who is to sell our house is a prime specimen. She is perky. Nothing gets her down. Not even the fact that we're selling in the midst of the biggest depression since the Great Flood. In this area, it's different. You have a lovely home, but she thinks we have too many books. She doesn't say so, but she talks of creating spaces on the shelves for snow globes, perhaps, or silver photo frames with perfect children showing off perfect teeth. This is a cultural thing. When selling a home in America, you have to pretend that you don't live there. No, you have to pretend that no one lives there, or ever has. Previously owned homes are, of course, the norm, but we Europeans, we understand that previous generations have made their mark. This means, as we English know, having grown up with rattling windows and mouldy grouting, that a home will be imperfect. They do not make such allowances in America. So the inspector's report, the survey, is the cause of much deliberation and soul-searching with our potential buyers. An outside light is not working properly. A tap is leaking. A chimney needs investigation. As I read it, my mind turns to our house in London, which is actually falling down. Somebody omitted to prop up the middle when an arch was cut in a downstairs room a hundred years ago, but which is still eminently saleable. The English understand that we are all falling down. Dust to dust, we intuit. Americans don't. They haven't got there yet. 
Truth be told, I would rather be them than us. I admire the concern over the chimney and the belief that the problem can be fixed. I sit on the porch in the growing evening heat of the Washington spring, the cicadas chirruping and the sound of lawns being mowed, and yearn to be staying. It would be so easy, so uncomplicated, so safe. And yet, of course, like the perfect home we try to create, this safety is an illusion. From Washington, let me take you south, 600 miles or so, to the state of South Carolina. In the steamy heat of the night, cicadas deafening in these parts, breeze all but non-existent, I drove Route 17 south, out of Charleston and down into the low country, the salt marshes. Charleston is one of America's most elegant cities, but Route 17 is not on any tourist maps, at least not as an attraction in its own right. In a sense, though, it should be. It gives a wonderful insight into hard-scrabble American life, the sleazy glamour of the road that repels and appeals to visitors, and indeed Americans themselves, in roughly equal measure. Gas stations, tattoo parlours, Bojangles pizzas, $59 a night motels, pawn shops, gun shops, car showrooms, nail bars, and Piggly Wiggly, the local supermarket chain, which in my limited experience smells almost as odd as it sounds. It's a panorama of the mundane. Doric columns are plenty, but all of them made of cheap concrete and attached to restaurants or two-bit accountants' offices. On and on it goes, encroaching into the palm forests with no hint of apology. As it happens, I'm due to visit one of those forests, and the following morning I find myself standing next to a black four-wheel drive vehicle and another quintessentially American phenomenon, a politician mired in Bible-laced hypocrisy. At the time I met Mark Sanford, the governor of South Carolina, just a few months ago, I didn't know about the hypocrisy, though I should have guessed when he offered to let me into a secret. He was a closet tiller of fields, he said, like nothing better than to get out with his boys and work the land. A little too wholesome to be true. Weeks after telling me that all-American story, it transpired that he was also ploughing furrows in foreign fields. The man disappeared, only to turn up in Buenos Aires with an Argentinian woman who was not Mrs. Sanford. This from a man who, when he was a congressman, lived in some peculiar Christian fellowship house in D.C. didn't stop his Doric columns from being false. For all the ugliness, the deadening tawdriness of much of the American landscape, the tinny feebleness of many of its politicians, for all the nastiness and shallowness and flakiness, there is no question in my mind that to live here has been the greatest privilege of my life. The immensity of America, the energy, the zest for life, reminds me sometimes of India. And as with India, where I spent some time for the BBC many moons ago, America shines a light on the entire human condition. Few other nations really do. Italy reveals truths about Italians, Afghanistan about Afghans, Fiji about Fijians. But America speaks to the whole of humanity, because the whole of humanity is represented here. Our possibilities and our propensities. Often what is revealed is unpleasing, truths that are not attractive or wholesome or hopeful. On the last day we spent in our home in northwest Washington, they were holding a food-eating competition in a burger bar at the end of our street. The sight was nauseating, acne-ridden youths, several already obese, stuffing meat and buns into their mouths, while local TV reporters, the women in dinky pastel suits, rushed around getting the best shots. 
America can be seen as little more than an eating competition, a giant, gaudy, manic effort to stuff grease and gunge into already sated innards. You could argue that the subprime mortgage crisis, the ground zero of the world recession, was caused mainly by greed, a lack of proportion, a lack of proper respect for the natural way of things that persuaded companies to stuff mortgages into the mouths of folk whose credit rating was always likely to induce an eventual spray of vomit. There is an intellectual ugliness as well, a dark age lurking, even when the president has been to Harvard, the darkness epitomised by the recent death in Wisconsin of a little girl who should still be alive. 11-year-old Cara Newman was suffering from type 1 diabetes, an autoimmune condition my son was recently diagnosed with. But her family, for religious reasons, decided not to take her to hospital. They prayed by her bedside, and the little girl died. The night before she died, and she would have been in intense discomfort, her parents called the founder of a religious website and prayed with him on the telephone. But they did not call a doctor. If Cara had been taken to hospital, even at that late stage, insulin could have saved her. She could have been home in a few days and chirpy by the end of the week, as my son was. It was an entirely preventable death, caused, let's be frank, by some of the Stone Age superstition that stalks the richest and most technologically advanced nation on Earth. I deplore the superstition and the eating competitions and the tatty dreariness of so much of America, and I note that the new president is also unimpressed by the infrastructure and not a fan of fat. But after more than seven years of living here, I am increasingly convinced that these elements of the nation are not the flip side of the greatness of America. They are part of that greatness. There is something about the carelessness of America that gives space for huge achievement. Out on Route 17 in South Carolina, you can do very well or very badly. You can crash and burn, or you can fill up with cheap petrol and ride off into the sunset. If you don't like yourself in South Carolina, you can hire a self-drive hire truck and take it to Seattle. If you don't like your life and you have drive and luck, you can change it, because being American, you believe you can change it. Sitting in a dingy apartment in New York, watching Perry Mason on the TV, you can decide to make it big in the law, as eight-year-old Sonia Sotomayor did. This summer, now in her 50s, she becomes a Supreme Court Justice and the latest American story to send shivers down the spines of dreamers of the American dream. But if Sonia Sotomayor is to make it big, there must be something creating the drive. And part of that something is the poverty of the alternative, the discomfort of the ordinary lives that most Americans endure, and the freedom that Americans have to go to hell if that is the decision they take. This is the atmosphere in which Nobel Prize winners are nurtured. A nation which will one day mass-produce a cure for type 1 diabetes could not, would not, save little Cara Newman from the bovine idiocy of her religious parents. More than 300 million people live here now, settlers from all over the world, from Ho Chi Minh City, from Timbuktu, from Vilnius, from Tehran, from every last corner of the earth, they have made America their home and they're still streaming in. I feel crazy going back to the old world. My five-year-old daughter Clara, who is the proud owner of an American passport, agrees. She says she intends to leave home at around 12 and return to her native land. I don't blame her. If you're willing to chance your arm, if you back yourself, if you want to live the life, 
America is still the place to be. Drive out on Route 17 and take a chance. So that's it from me. I'm checking out, but part of me can never leave. In the old Soviet Union, they used to say that anything that wasn't forbidden was compulsory. The trick was to remember which was which. In the West, we've always congratulated ourselves on taking a slightly more relaxed, common-sense view of things and forget that common sense is often just as arbitrary. You've got to know the rules, especially if you travel. A few years ago, well, I can tell you exactly, in fact, it was early 1994, I had a little run-in with the police. I was driving along Westway into central London with my wife, who was six months pregnant, and I overtook on the inside lane. Not a piece of wild and reckless driving in the circumstances. Honestly, it was just the way the traffic was flowing. But anyway, I suddenly found myself being flagged down by a police car. The policeman signalled me to follow them down the motorway and, astonishingly, to stop behind them on a bend in the slip road, where we could all get out and have a little chat about my heinous crime. I was aghast. Cars, trucks and, worst of all, white vans were careering down the slip road, none of them, I'm sure, expecting to find a couple of cars actually parked there, right on the bend. Any one of them could easily have rear-ended my car with my pregnant wife inside. The situation was frightening and insane. I made this point to the police officer, who, as is so often the case with the police, took a different view. The officer's point was that overtaking on an inside lane was inherently dangerous. Why? Because the law said it was. But being parked on a blind bend on a slip road was not dangerous because I was there on police instructions, which made it legal, and hence, this was the tricky bit to follow, safe. My point was that I accepted that I had, quite safely, made a manoeuvre that was illegal under the laws of England, but that our current situation, parked on a blind bend in the path of fast-moving traffic, was life-threatening by reason of the actual physical laws of the universe. The officer's next point was that I wasn't in the universe, I was in England, a point that has been made to me before. I gave up trying to win an argument and agreed to everything so that we could just get out of there. As it happened, the reason I had rather over-casually overtaken on the inside lane was that I am very used to driving here in the United States, where everybody routinely exercises their constitutional right to drive in whatever damn lane they please. Under American law, overtaking on the inside lane, where traffic conditions allow, is perfectly legal, perfectly normal, and hence, perfectly safe. But I'll tell you what isn't. I was once in San Francisco, and I parked in the only available space which happened to be on the other side of the street. The law descended on me. Was I aware of how dangerous the manoeuvre I'd just made was? I looked at the law a bit blankly. What had I done wrong? I had, said the law, parked against the flow of traffic. Puzzled, I looked up and down the street. What traffic, I asked. The traffic that would be there, said the law, if there was any traffic. This was a bit metaphysical, even for me, so I explained, a bit lamely, that in England we just park wherever we can find a parking space available, and weren't that fussy about which side of the street it was on. He looked at me aghast, as if I was lucky to have got out of a country of such wild and crazy car parkers alive, and promptly gave me a ticket. Clearly he would rather have deported me before my subversive ideas brought chaos and anarchy to streets which normally had to cope with nothing more alarming than a few simple assault rifles, which, as we know, in the States are perfectly legal, and without which they would be overrun by herds of deer, overbearing government officers, and lawless British tea importers. My late friend Graham Chapman, an idiosyncratic driver at the best of times, used to exploit the mutual incomprehension of British and US driving habits by always carrying both British and Californian driver's licenses. 
Whenever he was stopped in the US, he would flash his British license and vice versa. He would also mention that he was just on his way to the airport to leave the country, which he always found to be such welcome news that the police would breathe a sigh of relief and wave him on. But though there are frequent misunderstandings between the Europeans and the Americans, at least we've had decades of shared movies and TV to help us get used to each other. Outside those bounds, you can't make any assumptions at all. In China, for instance, the poet James Fenton was once stopped for having a light on his bicycle. How would it be, the police officer asked him severely, if everybody did that? However, the most extreme example I've come across of something being absolutely forbidden in one country and normal practice in another is one I can't quite bring myself to believe, though my cousin swears it's true. She lived for several years in Tokyo, and tells of a court case in which a driver, who was being prosecuted for driving up onto the pavement, crashing into a shop window and killing a couple of pedestrians, was allowed to enter the fact that he was blind drunk at the time as a plea in mitigation. What are the rules you need to know if you are moving from one country to another? What are the things that are compulsory in one country and forbidden in another? Common sense won't tell you. We have to tell each other.